this idea that validating or contextualizing somebody's human experience is not the same thing as condoning whatever it is. Like you're going, I understand. It doesn't mean I agree. And so I'm, I'm breaking those equal signs, right? Where if I can offer some kind of compassion, that means I agree with you. If I can offer understanding, it means that I agree with you. Um, again, it's this spaciousness to be able to go, I understand how you got there and that's not where I am and that's not where I'm trying to get to. And I don't even necessarily mean that I, I am okay with the other person staying where they are, um, but I need to get consent before I start trying to shift people from wherever they are. Like, I'm not gonna butt my head against a brick wall if somebody's really rooted in their ideology and they're not looking for alternatives. But if somebody's actually coming to me and be like, hey, this is what I believe, change my mind. I'll be like, okay, fine, game on. Like, I <laughs> checkmate. <laughs> like, sure, let's go. But yeah, it's really being able to break that idea that there's an equal sign between understanding and agreeing. Welcome back to another episode of Get Psyched. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today Sarah Russell is joining us again to talk all about how to disagree with dignity. I don't know about you, but every time I sign on to social media or see the news, I am overwhelmed with the most crunchy, visceral response. I'm watching people yell at one another, talk at one another or to one another and not with. There's no cooperation. There's no real communication. Today, Sarah talks all about the difference of intention versus impact, how to apologize, and that apologizing is not admitting guilt, okay? We can have differing opinions. We can have a difference in experience, and that's okay. We can still live in a world where we model for one another the space in which we can hold and how we need to be held. I cannot wait for you to listen to today's episode and... I have something really exciting to tell you. Element, my favorite hydration supplement, LMNT, is bringing back my favorite flavor. The box showed up on my door this morning for the grapefruit element. It goes live end of this month, May 30th. Get your hands on it. I seriously stocked up last summer. It is a limited time flavor again. They have not listened to all of my emails, messages, everything else to say, bring this flavor back all the time, but it is here. Get your hands on it while you can. You can get a free sample pack using the link in the show notes. And as soon as grapefruit is live, I will be letting you know so that you can get as many boxes as your heart desires. Until next week, enjoy the show. All right, guys, welcome back to Get Psyched. I'm sitting down again with Sarah Russell. I'm so excited. I was just telling her before the show that hers is one of the most listened to episodes that we have to date on relationship anarchy. And today we are leaving no stone unturned, leaving no hard conversation unhad. Um, to be completely honest, I've been sitting in a lot of heaviness with the announcement of everything happening with Roe v. Wade and how I'm watching on social media conversations or lack thereof um, unfolding in, in very crunchy ways. And so I couldn't wait to have Sarah on to talk about all these things because one of the things I love is how much you give listeners tangible tools and how people can leave today's show and our last show 
with actual ways to make change. Go figure, <laughs> considering what it is that you do. So before we dive into everything, for people who haven't listened to the last show, can we give just a brief elevator pitch of who Sarah Russell is, and then we'll dive into all of these goodies. Sure. Hi, I'm so glad to be here. I, you know, I love talking with you. I love our flow. So yeah, um, I, I have a few labels, right? Uh, obviously, I identify as a relationship anarchist. You mentioned that. I also identify as a revolutionary witch and an abolitionist feminist. I also identify as queer. I'm Taoist. So those are a lot of the multiple identities that I occupy. And then as far as what I teach, my lineage is Skills for Change. And Skills for Change is this embodied change practice through a power analysis. So we're constantly looking at who has what power and what context and how that affects the transaction. I was just having this conversation with somebody today, actually, go figure everything is so in the flow when we start chatting um, about partnership and about what changes they would like to see in their partnership and all the things that they would have loved to do for their, how they would like their partner to change. And I was like, well, well, let's stop, right? We can't, yes, we can identify that we want those things, that we're longing for those things. And we can't make somebody change. That takes a conscious decision on someone else's part. What we can do is recognize our position in the pattern and make our conscious decision to change and what that looks like. And it got me thinking about what we're going to chat about today is how can you have such opposing views from somebody else and still leave a conversation or an argument? I love you say disagreeing with dignity, right? How do we, how, because it is not modeled for us anywhere. So yeah, this is real. Um, One of the things, part of my journey was I had to figure out whether or not I could love people who had different worldviews than me. If I could only be in intimate relationships or have in my inner circle, people who shared my worldview. And I decided that I didn't want that to be true for me, that I actually wanted to be able to love people who had different worldviews. I don't know if we talked about this before, but for instance, my dad definitely falls on the conservative side of the spectrum. And I'm like way out in left field, right? And yet I love my dad and I'm not willing to damage our relationship. And so him and I over the years have had to figure out ways of how to navigate our dignified differences. We've had to figure out like we love each other and we want to respect each other and we want to do no harm in our relationship to each other as much as possible. But how do we do that when our worldviews are sometimes really opposed to each other? And one of the things that makes it easier, for instance, in a relationship with my dad is I have full autonomy. I don't have to pick up the phone. I can take space whenever I want to. When I reach out, there's mutual reciprocity. He also wants to engage in a relationship with me. And so I have the power to leave that relationship anytime it doesn't feel like it's meeting my minimum standard. And the ability to leave the relationship actually enables my power to stay, to stay in conversation with him, to hear his difference in worldviews, to be able to debate with him or dialogue with him about things that are complicated because I actually could choose to opt out if I wanted to. And so I feel like one of the things that's really important is if you're going to have differences with somebody, you both have to be able to leave because your ability to leave is your ability to stay. So if you're financially dependent, if you're dependent on somebody for housing or paying your bills, it actually makes it really hard to have a cooperative relationship where you can disagree with dignity. Yeah. Well, you're in that, that power struggle, right? That makes me think that 
some of the, the differences you may be having, I could be wrong here, but some of the differences you may be having are not the actual substance that you're arguing about, right? There's this desire to kind of even the playing field. Um, I see you nodding. Does that kind of resonate? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things I'm thinking of constantly when I'm in conversation with people, and especially when I'm in conflict conversations with people, is the for the sake of what? Why are we having this conversation right now? Most of the time, I'm not having a conversation to try to change somebody else's mind. Sometimes I want to be seen, heard, and understood. Sometimes I feel like the other person might need more information in order to make an informed decision about how to relate with me. But I'm often not super interested in conversations where I'm going to battle it out with somebody to tell them how wrong they are. And I'm also not super interested in conversations where I'm made to be wrong. There needs to be enough space for us to go, hey, what you're doing doesn't work for me. It doesn't meet my minimum standard. It's not in alignment with what I want. And, you know, especially like in romantic and intimate partnerships, so much of our lives become enmeshed that if we, if we don't have enough space to fully be ourselves, it's probably an enmeshment problem. Like there's probably too much overlap that's happening where we're pulling on each other. We've got our hooks in too strongly because that's ability to go, I can take as much space mentally, emotionally, physically from you as I need in order for you to have enough room to be you and me to have enough room to be me, assuming that there's no harm that's being done. Mm. Can you give a few examples of what the harm may be for people listening? Yeah. I mean, just like I'll, I'll try to do something that's not too triggering just so that there doesn't have to be a content warning for listeners. I'll, I'll do something on the, the minors, the mild side. Um, but let's say for instance, you're in the middle of a conversation and <laughs> I, I had this with somebody where, um, during the last wave of BLM, when everyone was posting the black squares on Instagram as an act of solidarity. Um, I remember I woke up that morning and checked my feed and saw the blackout on my feed. And I went, wait a minute, wait a minute. The hashtag BLM is supposed to be a channel for news and sharing information. And all of a sudden it feels like the feed has been silenced. And so I had this, like, what's going on in this moment? And, you know, what later emerged was that somebody who was actually trying to disrupt the movement had suggested we post those black squares. But what was happening was all of these people who wanted to be in solidarity with marginalized communities were getting confused because they're like, wait a minute, like, I'm trying to show I have solidarity in this moment. I'm not sure what the right move is. And all of a sudden there was all this like, post a black square, otherwise you're not in support of the movement. Take down the black squares that's silencing the feed. And there became this super dualistic, this is the good and right way to be in movement. This is a bad and wrong way to be in movement. And it creates a situation where people have a hard time knowing how to be successful in their allyship and their comradeship and their support. And so I was in the middle of con a conversation with somebody where I was like, people need to take the black squares down if they're hearing the information that the black squares are complicated. And the person that I was talking to was like, like, that's not a good sign that our movement was able to be corrupted so easily. And if it's so easy to overthrow a movement, like maybe we need to figure out something to do. And I was like, actually, I think we just need to pivot really strongly. And the other person got um, really upset that I was like, yeah, we just have to pivot constantly. And they're like, no, we need like, we need a solid strategy for how to move forward. And it eventually got to this point where they yelled something at me like, well, then that's just stupid. I was like, okay, we're to the point where name calling is happening. I'm going to go take 15 minutes. I'm going to step outside. I'm not willing to get into a conversation where we're in each other's faces, yelling, calling names. Um, I'm still willing to have this conversation with you, but I'm not willing to have this conversation as soon as we get into this, like, well, you suck or you're stupid, or that's like a terrible way to do things. 
Um, so for instance, that would be a moment when I need to remove myself from a conversation, um, to have enough space, like, yeah, I'll talk to you about this, but I have a specific way of how I'm willing to talk to you about this. Yeah. I think that so many people get stuck in what you named at the beginning of I'm going to change your mind. And I, I get this feeling. I mean, when I'm in conversation with somebody and I feel as though that is their intention, um, I shut down. There's no, there isn't conversation happening. You can, at that point, you're talking at me, not to me or with me. Right. And it took me a really long time to recognize that. Right. I'm cut my, in a past life, I was ready to be a lawyer. I was ready. Like you I argue with that. me. I am, I'm going to argue and I'm going to argue better. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I used to tell people like, oh, like, please don't be a bitch. Cause then I have to be a bitch and I'm really good at it. Right. <laughs> I don't want to do right. that. Right. Um, and so here I am recovering arguer and bigger bitcher. <laughs> um, <laughs> raising my hand for those of you that are more strategic pitches now. Yes, exactly. And so when you recognize that somebody is coming to a conversation with those same intentions of, I'm going to change your mind. I am going to prove my correctness or my rightness in this argument. What would be a way that you can bring that about your knowledge of that or your intuition of that without triggering the other person into more defensive arguing? So depending on the level of intimacy in the relationship, I might have different strategies, but I'll do a broad strokes thing here where I'm recognizing that because I am trained in cooperative communication, I'm a relationship coach that I have a, a high skill set here and I'm pretty attached to the way that I do things. So I, I'm coming in with a lot of power, right? I'm like, yeah, I have this skill set. And by the way, I have a tremendous amount of self-confidence. So not only do I have this structure that I'm relying on, I also have a tremendous of, of amount of personal and transactional power in the moment. I can leverage how quickly I can talk, how articulate I am, how much I've delved into this topic. I can wield that like a hammer and people can start feeling like they're nails in a conversation with me. So one of the things that I will actually do if I'm trying to, it's like this Aikido move where I'm trying to blend with the conversation. So if somebody is feeling really defensive and really adamant and really dualistic, and it feels like it's getting emotional, first of all, I want to say if it's too hot, I'll pause it because most of the time I like to be like cold to lukewarm in my conversations. Mm. Like I don't like to come to a lot of conversations super hot. That being said, like if that pause or like some like it's kind of cooled down a little bit. Um, I'll do this Aikido move where I tend to mirror or reflect or validate first. Hey, it sounds like you're really frustrated about this, or it sounds like this is really important to you. And what I understand to be important to you is X, Y, and Z. I'll reflect back. And if the other person starts going, yeah, yeah, yeah. I go, okay. Like now we're developing some kind of rapport with each other where we're in a conversation with each other instead of against each other. So I kind of do this blending move first. Hmm. Usually if I offer that to somebody else, I've been like scaffolded in a way I've demonstrated like, Hey, by the way, you know, that thing I just did for you. I would also like you to do that for me right now, because I just showed you, I can understand where you're coming from and what's important to you. And are you also willing to do that for me in this conversation? Yeah. How do you start to, that makes so much sense to me, right? I'm shaking my head. I'm yes, I'm here with you. And for a long time, again, let's go back to past life lawyer, lawyer Lindsay. Um, I had a story 
that if I can reflect to you what I'm hearing you say without some sort of defensiveness or some way of proving that what you're saying is flawed, then I'm some way agreeing with you or showing you that I I stand beside what it is that you're saying. Um, How do you start to debunk that for people if this is a new skill? Yeah, I think that's really important. Um, I told you I was just um, thinking about forgiveness and forgiveness is a little similar about this. This idea that validating or contextualizing somebody's human experience is not the same thing as condoning whatever it is, right? Like you're going, I understand. It doesn't mean I agree. And so I'm, I'm breaking those equal signs, right? Where if I can offer some kind of compassion, that means I agree with you. If I can offer understanding, it means that I agree with you. Um, again, it's this spaciousness to be able to go, I understand how you got there. And that's not where I am. And that's not where I'm trying to get to. And I don't even necessarily mean that I, I am okay with the other person staying where they are. Um, but I need to get consent before I start trying to shift people from wherever they are. Like, I'm not going to butt my head against a brick wall if somebody's really rooted in their ideology and they're not looking for alternatives. But if somebody's actually coming to me and be like, hey, this is what I believe, change my mind, I'll be like, okay, fine, game on. Like, I <laughs> checkmate. <laughs> like, sure, let's go. Um, but yeah, it's really being able to break that idea that there's an equal sign between understanding and agreeing. Hmm. How would you define that? Like what would understanding in your body feel like versus agreeing? Sure. Um, so for instance, God, I just don't know if I want to call my dad out this hard all the time. Um, <laughs> hey dad, we're sending you love. Hi dad, I love you so much. <laughs> um, you're going to get famous. No, <laughs> um, so for instance, um, oh God, what is that slogan? It's the, it's the let's go Brandon, right? Oh yeah. 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 The let's go Brandon, um, which is the like F Joe Biden. Right. And so my dad has this like super strong, like let's go Brandon kind of energy in him. Um, and again, because he tends to lean to the right. I came home. My parents still live in very North East conservative California, which does exist. Listeners outside of California, conservative California exists. Yeah. And they think it is hilarious to put make America great again, hats on my dog or flags on my truck. And so I get it. And I love my parents and I get that we disagree on this very fundamental level. Right. Right. So I'm here with you. I totally (laughs) feel this, this, we're not calling you out, dad. No, love dad. It's just a complicated world. And like, like the thing is, is the fact that my dad and I can have such big differences and there can still be such respect and admiration and upliftment. Um, I, I really appreciate that, but yeah, so he has this whole, like, let's go, Brandon. Um, what I tend to do is go, yeah, dad, here are all the ways that I can understand why this feels like hypocrisy to you or why this feels like, um, like there's, there's some kind of dishonesty that's happening. Um, but again, like I'll, I'll tend to do that Aikido move where I go, like, I don't necessarily agree with you in all of the ways that you think dishonesty or, um, lack of capacity is happening. Um, but here are the ways that where I can contextualize, like, yeah, by the way, the budget, yeah, by the way, what's happening in the military. And then I will go, and here's my perspective on all of that. Like, <laughs> like the conversation I tend to get in with my dad is like, you're right, dad, F Joe Biden, because F the state. And he goes, no, 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 like I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> and I'm like, no, dad, the state is not the solution. He's like, no, no, no. Like, <laughs> and so, um, and so this idea of like, 
I, I will tend to go through, like, I imagine why you're feeling this way, or I imagine like how you got there. I'll tell a, as, as life affirming a story as possible as I can about somebody else's perspective. Um, but then I will go, okay. And here's where we have commonalities. I agree. F everybody in the, in government <laughs> as much as possible. Um, here's where we have differences. Here's where I'm saying like, actually, like, I'm not saying like it's team red or team blue. I'm going like, get rid of all the teams to begin with. And then I do um, like anything that my dad might have left out. And by the way, dad, I want you to remember that you're going to, you're in a, uh, you know, a straight white male body. And by the way, I'm in a queer um, female body and that my experience around all of this is going to be impacted differently than you. And, you know, so I'll, I'll do like a, here's where we have something in common. Here's where our differences are. And here are the pieces that you left out so that I'm being really clear where I agree, where I disagree and where there's some complexity there. Yeah. Where, where my truth lies. I think right. so many people get lost in my truth is the truth instead of a truth. Yeah. I mean, that idea of truth with a capital T feels really messy because truth feels contradictory and like paradoxical and it shifts with the sands, right? Like what's true in this relationship, in this moment, at this particular time, that might not be true at a later moment or in a different context. And so like all of these little T's, these little T truths are super important for me. Um, and the ability to shift when new information comes in, oh, like new information came in that actually shifted my truth a little bit. Um, and so being able to be adaptable and flexible and mutable as more information comes in, as we learn more. Yeah. How do we have that conversation that I reserve the right at any time to change my mind? I had this conversation with um, my coach, the, the woman who trained me in this, Nancy Chanteau, and we were talking about that, okay, so both her and I have taken this vow to always fight for the underdog. So regardless of what's happening in a particular context, we're going to side with the underdog as the person who's in a one down position of power that we are going to become uh, like, you know, I like to, there's this idea of, are you an ally? Are you a comrade? Are you a co-conspirator? So if I'm trying to get to that co-conspirator level where I'm not just like uplifting you, but I'm actually like in the fight with you as much as I can be with my multi multiple privileges and multiple marginalized identities. Um, if I'm always fighting for the underdog, um, I just lost my train of thought. Repeat your question. Um, how do oh, the we... holding, the, the holding, the holding multiple truths, go ahead. I interrupt Not you. only holding multiple truths, but how can I, um, step oh. away when, or, or change my truth or my right. stance on something when being presented with new information. Right. Sometimes I get up on this revolutionary soapbox and start talking about the underdog and then I can't think of anything else. Okay. So what we were talking about <laughs> that we have this ability that is both like something that we desire and something that we've trained to pivot quickly. So for instance, we can come out into a community, we can say whatever it is that we're going to say. And then if somebody in that community identifies as the underdog, as marginalized in some way, and they come to us and they go, hey, by the way, there's something you left out or there's a piece that you were missing or I wanna share my experience with you as a way to increase your understanding of this that ability to pivot quickly, to not drop down into defensiveness, to go, oh, what my intention was, like what I intended when I said that, this is the impact, intention versus impact conversation, right? 
oh, the impact was that didn't land on you in the way that I wanted it to, or the impact was that caused some harm, or the impact was I was too reductive or simplistic or dualistic, or there was this blind spot that I didn't know I had, really being able to not drop into defensiveness and go, okay, I'm learning. I hear you. What do you need from me? And then being able to integrate that into whatever the story was before. So now there's this upgraded cosmology that's taking taking the cult, the constant shifting culture into account, right? So culture isn't the stagnant, stagnant thing. We can see this, um, like for instance, within the trans community, how we shifted from what are your preferred pronouns to what are your pronouns? Like that, that shift was important for, for all of us and being able to go, okay, like I'm just gonna keep learning. I'm gonna keep shifting. If I wanna stay on the forefront of all of these movements, I need to be able to pivot very quickly and non-defensively. Yeah. I love bringing up the difference between intention and impact because for so many people, myself included, I know it has come out of my mouth when I hurt somebody's feelings and there is an apology that needs to be said or had. And I initially want to say that was not my intention instead of investigating or understanding what the impact was. So just quickly, can you kind of, for listeners that that perked their ears up as well, define the difference between intention and impact. And then maybe we can go into like how to actually apologize in a way that is healing. Sure. So let's say for instance, um, okay. I have, I have an example that again is hopefully not too triggering. Um, it was just my birthday this last Sunday. Ooh, we're so close to being Um, you are having a conversation about understanding and apologizing with two bulls, you guys. (laughs) So if we can do this, it is so much to be said there. You can do this too. (laughs) I did not come into the world this way. This was a hard one skill (laughs) set. Yes. Years of practice, years of mistakes. Yeah. Um, okay. The difference between intention and impact. So it was just your birthday. It was just my birthday. And I just had the dreamiest, most Torian birthday ever. And it was, I'm thinking back a few years ago, um, somebody who loved me very much decided that they were going to give me the birthday they thought I should want. And so (laughs) what they did for this Taurus, for this Enneagram eight, who has very strong yeses, very strong no's. I have a particular like, yes, I want decadent luxury and sensuality, but I want it to be cozy and easy. (laughs) And here on this material planet. (laughs) Oh, right here, here. Um, So this person decided, I know what would be great for Sarah. I should throw her a surprise birthday party I'm going to decide the guest list. I'm going to decide the location. I'm going to decide all of the food. I'm going to tell her one thing is happening. And then at the last minute, I'm going to do something else completely different. And I am like, I am that slow and steady bull. Like if you want me to like change direction, you got to give me some time to like think about it and like chew on it for a while. And then like, I'm going to flick a little, like some of the flies away. And then I might start to rotate my body. So this, like, I think one thing's happening something else is happening. It's a something else that feels like a very extroverted something. I identify as quite a bit of an introvert. And I walk into that room and everyone's like, surprise, and jumps out from behind curtains. And it's a bunch of people. And I'm like, what the 
hell am I doing here? I'm like trying not to cry in front of all these people that are loving me right now because this is not what I wanted. And so the intention with this person was like, I want you to feel so loved and so celebrated. And I want you to be surrounded by people who care about you. And I want to do something extravagant and decadent because I know that you love that. And I just want to show you how much I love you. And in that moment, the impact on me was, do you even know who I am? I'm feeling super overwhelmed in this moment. I was thinking I needed something a lot tinier than this. Like this is way bigger than I wanted. Like I'm trying to catch my breath and fight back tears. And you think I should be grateful in this moment. And so even when it's like really well-intentioned, like how is it actually landing on the other person? So whatever you thought it should be versus what the experience actually is for somebody else. Hmm. So segueing into our apologizing conversation, what was it like to have... I'm assuming here that there was a discussion to come after. What was it like to have that conversation with somebody who really does have really great intentions and the impact was just different? Yeah. So, you know, I have a whole model for how to repair when something's gone off. Um, And one of the things is I really like to start with the emotions of it, right? Because so often what happens is we go, hey, when you did this thing, I felt And then instead of saying, I felt overwhelmed or frustrated or scared or disappointed or confused, we say, I felt like you didn't know me at all. And we start telling a story instead of actually dropping into how we feel. So then we're immediately putting shame on the other person. We're immediately putting blame on the other person. We're telling the super, like you did something wrong and it messed me up rather than just really being able to sit with like, Hey, when you came up with this whole plan and you didn't clear it with me first, I felt like. I felt overwhelmed and tense and a little depleted and a little anxious. Um, that sometimes will let the other person in. It can also it can also trigger the other person, right? Especially if they're trying to do something sweet for you. Um, it, it can be really hard for them to receive that. But then then like where I go from there is like after you've named the emotion, there's this whole storytelling piece. And I'm I'm gonna give you the secret sauce right now. This is This is one of the most important things that I feel that we can do for each other when we're in the middle of conflict. Um, And this comes, Claude Steiner created this whole um, clearing health feelings model. Julia Kelleher developed it more and then Nancy Chanteau is currently tweaking it in her own way. So that's the lineage of this clearing health feelings. We have this thing where we say what's true, what's not true, and what's also true about somebody's story. So that what you were talking about when we are focusing on our intention, that's not what I meant. I didn't mean to do that. Of course, I care about you. Of course, I love you. We're immediately going into this move of invalidating the other person's experience because we like, especially when we care about someone, we're like, no, 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 no. You've got it all wrong. That's not what was happening. That's not what I meant. And the reason we do that isn't because we're trying to invalidate someone. It's actually because we're trying to show them how much we care about them. And so there's this really counterintuitive thing that we need to do where we need to validate someone's fear and feelings and all of the things that went wrong for them first so they can actually hear what our intention was and receive it. If we start with the intention, if we start with no, 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 like like this was a good thing for you and I was trying to do a good thing for you, that actually roots our, our stories down deeper in our bodies. But if someone can go, come forward and be like, oh my gosh, I imagine what was going on for you. The reason why you got there, if we can make that move towards understanding and like 
this is that, um, that idea of rather than like looking at each other's, if we're the problem coming around to the other person's side and trying to look at the problem as a team, if we're trying to see it from the other person's perspective, that's actually what opens up then all of the like, and Hey, by the way, I didn't mean to, and I'm sorry. And then there may be like, oh, what's also true. Um, that last piece of it is this larger cultural context or pieces of information that were left out. By the way, I've thrown surprise parties for people in my past before, and it just made them feel so seen and uplifted. And so culturally, that's just really normative for me. Um, you know, like I'm a dancer, like somebody might go, and by the way, like you love being on stage and you love being in front of a crowd. I just assume that would translate into this birthday space. Um, so like you can provide all the extra details, but the magic is that validating the other person first, whatever their story is, whatever their feelings are, because that's what opens up possibility for everything else that comes after. If you immediately start with what your intention was, that person's going to shut down. Mm. Yeah. And it goes back to what we were saying earlier, the power of validation and not just, okay, yeah, I hear you, Mm -hmm. but truly reflecting back, reflective listening, hearing that person. And it's almost like a, I don't want to say proving to, but I think at this point in the game where so many of us feel unheard, there is a calling to prove to another person that we hear you. Um, that I am actively listening to what you're telling me and how often that goes unnoticed. I mean, I'm not the first person to say this, but it's that idea that we all want to be listened to so badly, but if all of us are walking around wanting to be listened to, who's left to do the listening? So like, who's going to be the first one who actually can go like, I I actually have enough capacity and I have enough space that I can try to listen to you. And then hopefully you'll be able to listen to me too. But, you know, it's the same way that like all of us are walking around um, trying to get belonging. Like, do I belong? Do I belong? Do I belong? And how many of us are actually offering belonging to other people? So, you know, often this, like the gift that you give the world is the one that you most need to receive. So if I want to be listened to, then I also have to be willing to listen. Yes. And from early, early on, I mean, the way that we learn as kids is really through two things, through modeling. What are we seeing around us and how, right? That's why when people or parents or whoever's like, I didn't even know they were listening, right? They're always watching because that's how they're learning. Oh yeah. Is through that and through play. Yeah. Right? Through play, we get to learn how to take turns, how to win, how to lose, how to be on a team, when to be more independent. And I think all too often we, we lose those things so much and, and how important it can be or how transformative it can be um, to model for somebody what you need as opposed to always having to use our words. Right, right. So to go into apologizing more, Um, we kind of debunked the intention versus impact. What are other reasons you find people wanting to apologize or feeling the need to apologize that might fall short? I mean, here's the thing, right? It's like making a distinction between an apology and a repair where an apology might have the words, I'm sorry, you know, something that would go a little farther than I'm sorry is I'm sorry I did this specific thing that made you feel this specific way. Um, And notice I didn't say, I'm sorry you feel this way. That's more, I'm sorry I did this thing that made you feel this way. That feels like a distinction to me. 
So starting with an apology is a great step, but often it leaves us with this sense of like, um, of needing something more of just being like, Hey, like I hear that you said, I'm sorry, but like, it didn't actually settle anything for me. It didn't actually clear anything for me. And so then we're talking about like, what's a repair. Okay. I did some harm. So now I'm going to do something that actually provides some ease in your body or some ease in your life in some way. And again, you know, a little bit like what we were talking about earlier, I think a lot of people that think, think apologizing means you're admitting guilt. You're admitting that you did something wrong. And so again, this is, this is not going, Hey, I'm admitting that your story about me and what I did is accurate. That's not what apologizing is for me. Apologizing is going, Oh, I did this thing and it had this impact on you. It was a negative impact. I care about our relationships. And I want to do something that has a positive impact on you with no strings attached. This isn't so you forgive me. This isn't so you stop being mad. This isn't so you stop crying. This is just, hey, I'm recognizing that what I did made you feel a certain way that didn't feel great. And so now I want to do something that does make you feel better. So being able to move into that repair territory feels really important. And then, of course, like if we were going to continue down this path, um, is there some kind of behavior change? Like, is there some kind of new agreement we need to negotiate um, you know, what's the skill building that we need to do, the capacity building that we need to do, or do we actually just need to take more space from each other because person A is going to continue to do this, person B is going to continue to be hurt from this, but those are like our actual preferences and they're going to keep getting enacted. So do we actually just need to like limit certain contexts in which we're interacting with each other so less harm is being done? So you can kind of like go down the apology, like the, the path of apology, right? But that that repair, I would say, is really important. And it's a step that often gets missed or skipped or left out in some way because people think just acknowledging, hey, I'm sorry, um, or like, you know, groveling on your knees, like that should be enough. And it's like, no, 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 like now, now I need a hug. Now I need you to cook dinner. Now I need you to take the trash out. Now I need you to like do something that feels sweet and loving and connected and shows you that you value this connection. Yeah. It's that modeling again, right? It's that I don't just need you to talk the talk, right? show up and walk the walk. Right. Something that I really appreciate that you're bringing to the conversation is actually physically stepping away if need be. Um, you know, we talk about it a lot in, um, therapy is, you know, the, the negotiated timeout, um, which Timeout and negotiated timeout are two very different things for those listening. Um, Negotiated is something that we talk about all of these terms before the need for a timeout ever happens. Mm. I know how long a timeout typically will last. I know where you may be going. So I'm, you don't just leave. It's not super manipulative. I don't know how long you're going to be gone, who you're going to be with, where in my mind can spin out. But knowing all of these things that if I get to this really triggered state, or as you said, um, not a cool or, or lukewarm state, I'm, I'm boiling, neither one of us are listening now. And so there is so much power in taking that step away with the agreement, the negotiation that there will be a return, that it's not just, okay, we're going to distance each other distance from each other and then never come back to the conversation. The goal of the distance is to come back to the conversation with, you know, that, that cool or lukewarm kind of temperature. And I was watching something today, Esther Perel was talking about how important it is if someone needs to leave, that that person be the one to come back 
and not be chased by the other person that is waiting or asked to come back. And I would just love to hear what your thoughts are on that. Sure. So, you know, Gottman talks about this in terms of stonewalling, right? When somebody gets physiologically flooded because the conversation has escalated to a point where now your heart's beating fast, you're breathing shallow, your palms might be sweating. And we know in that survival response that the prefrontal cortex is starting to shut down. Your ability to hold complexity, see the other person's perspective, be creative in solutions is offline in those moments. And so trying to push through when somebody is physiologically flooded isn't going to provide sustainable or satisfying solutions for anybody. As far as, um, I love Esther Perel, super love Esther Perel. Um, And I agree that like, if somebody wants to leave, they need to be able to leave. As far as who returns first, um, part of that, like I I would tweak it just a little bit. Um, So rather than the person who left needing to be the one to come back first, offering that that person gets to be the one that comes back. Because if somebody's physiologically flooded and they're taking space and then you pursue them, you're likely to kick off that psychobiological response again, and then they're going to need more space. And so if somebody's taking space, I'm going to take them at face value. Like you need space from me which means you have to be the one to tell me when you don't need space anymore, because otherwise I might be perturbing you further. And I'm not actually trying to do more harm in that moment. Um, So like letting that person be the first one to come back. So not even just that person needing to be the first one to come back, but letting them be the first one to come back so they can actually take as much time as they need to get recentered. So the conversation that can happen is going to be the best one available. Feels really important. And to let that person know, right, inviting them that they're not wrong for having had taken this space. Because that can be triggering for people too, right? Now I'm in this, okay, I've run away or I have like avoided my problem, which I'm not saying that is what was happening, right? For those of you that can't see me, I'm air quoting over here with those things. Um, But there's almost a shame in returning or there's almost a, how do I return now? So once you've taken space, how have you given yourself the permission to be able to come step back into that place and be with that person's energy? Yeah. So here's like, this, this is where it gets a little tricky, right? Is, are you going to be persecuted for taking space when you come back? Or is it already built into the relationship that people aren't punished for taking space? Like, have we already agreed that when one of us needs to take space, we're allowed to do that. And that, that might be like, you might be able to have enough wherewithal to go, I'm feeling a little triggered and I need to take a 20 minute break or I'll be, I'll contact you in three days. Like that might be available. If you're already flooded, you might not be able to articulate what it is that you need. And if you're in a full on flight mode and you just bolt out the door, like again, not being persecuted for the fact that you're enacting a survival response. That doesn't mean the other person who's receiving all of that just needs to like take it all with no preference or whatsoever. Um, but being able to like, when you come back into it, what does each person need? So the person that left might need, not want to get persecuted. And the person that remained might need some kind of reassurance about, Hey, I'm here. And absolutely. We'll come back to this topic now that I've returned and let's set a time to talk about this. And like, what do you like, do you need a hug right now? Can I make you a cup of tea? Like, I understand that was hard for you. So again, repairing, Like the fact that that might've been painful for somebody without admitting that what you did was necessarily wrong or bad in some way. And all of this for me comes back to this idea of how much do you trust the person and how much do you trust the relationship? So for instance, if somebody's in a flight response or a stonewalling response and they're taking space and this idea of who they're gonna be with, when they're gonna be back, 
do you actually trust the relationship that the agreements hold? Even when somebody's in a triggered state, like this idea that we care for each other, the other person's not going to do something to disrupt that relationship. Do you trust that? Or do you actually have to constantly be like, hey, don't do that thing because it's going to hurt us. Hey, don't do that thing because it's going to hurt us. I mean, that's already starting to get into like tricky territory for me. And then like, do you also trust each other? Like, yeah, we can have bad moments, but there's longevity in this relationship. Or yeah, sometimes we're not going to show up as our best selves, but I'm still going to show up in honesty and authenticity and vulnerability and transparency with you. So it feels like there's also this trust piece. So for instance, in, in my inner circle, if somebody's like all of a sudden needing to take a tremendous amount of space, I'm going, I love them. And I know they love me and I trust them to be honest and sincere and reliable. And does there actually need to be any urgency right now? Or do I trust that at some point we're going to be able to come back to this in a way where we're going to be able to move through it? It's not that moment right now, no matter how bad I want it to be that moment right now. Like I actually trust that there's enough time for all of this to get done. Yeah. Something you mentioned before the show, and this will kind of be, I know this will launch us into another conversation. So as you know, the mic is always open, but you recently read uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book. (laughs) Yeah, I'm obsessed. And that was precipitated by, am I even, and I might butcher this, so please correct me if, if I'm saying this wrong, but um, you were working with someone that said, am I capable of creating a relationship where trust is present? Or am I, am I capable of finding that human, that trustworthy person and partner? Um, what, what was your response to that? How do, how, how do <laughs> this all ties into that, right? How yeah. can I trust the person? How can I trust the container? How can I trust myself to create yeah. those connections? Yeah. So it's just this idea where we start taking on a lot of self-blame thanks to the toxic individualism in the culture where we go, is it me? Do I just keep choosing bad partners, untrustworthy partners, people that aren't a good fit for me? Like, is there something wrong with me? Um, This idea that we should be able to accurately assess somebody, how compatible they're going to be for us and how trustworthy they are. Like, like the, the idea that we're supposed to have like some incredible capacity and skill set around all of that. And what Malcolm Gladwell talks about in this book, talking to strangers is like, we're crap at it. We're, we're just crap at it. And so we have this thing that he refers to as a truth default, where unless there is overwhelming evidence that somebody is lying to us or betraying us or being a complete bastard in some way, unless it's overwhelming evidence, we will default to truth. We'll go, I'm going to make up justification for that. I'm going to assume that what that person is telling me the truth and that you would think biologically, we'd be really good at spotting liars. And we're not because we're such social creatures and the benefits of trusting people and being able to stay part of the clan to be able to have everybody welcome around the fire outweigh it when the occasional person just completely misleads us in some way. So there's that. Then there's this idea that people are going to be transparent, this idea that they are going to show you exactly what they're feeling, right? Like they're not going to try to hide it. And, you know, we all have like our, our warts and our horns and our, you know, our tails and whatever it is where we're like, oh shit, like I'm just going to like, no one needs to know that one. (laughs) You don't need to know that yet. (laughs) I'm going to save that as a secret for later. Surprise. (laughs) By the way. I haven't worked on my shit nearly as much as I let you believe. (laughs) Um, So there's this transparency. Um, 
And then like the, the most fascinating part of this, this idea that we should be able to like face to face with somebody, get a good read, totally be able to assess their character and whether they're not a good match for us. There's this, this last piece where they did, they did this experiment where there were two people, two students taking a test in a classroom. And then there was the administrator of the test and the administrator leaves the room and leaves all of the answers to the test on the desk. And it turns out one of the two students is a plant and they're planted there in order to try to convince um, the person who's actually like within this experiment, we should just go look at those answers and cheat. Like she left them there. Nobody's going to know. And then the whole point of this experiment is then interviewing the person afterwards and asking them, so did you cheat? And then watching the person go through, they're like, yeah, I did. No, I didn't. And then trying to figure out whether or not we could tell if that person was lying. So there's this one, I think they call her blushing Sally where they ask her, did you cheat? And she like blushes to the roots of her scalp and she's stammering and she's stuttering. And everyone is like, oh yeah, Sally's lying. Like you can totally tell Sally's lying because she matched what we expected the expression of a liar to be like. Then nervous Nellie, they're like, so did you cheat? And she goes on this whole spiel like, well, no, I didn't cheat, but my partner cheated. But I think they only looked at one answer and they asked me if I wanted to look. And I said, no, 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 I don't want to look. But if you're just going to look at one, that's okay. But like, don't involve me, but like maybe one's okay, but I'm not a part of it. And everyone also pegged nervous Nellie as a liar because we just expect somebody to be like nervous. And I think she was like twirling her hair and tapping her foot. And she was just nervous. She was actually completely telling the truth. Her story completely checked out. And so all of the things that we think we have where we can determine like a person's character and how trustworthy they are, like it's just all kind of bogus. Like we're actually, we're pretty damn bad at it. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> What's, um, what has got my brain lighting up right now with that experiment is I'm reading, um, oh shoot hold me tight, I think is what it's called. And, um, it's all about, it's kind of modern day attachment theory mixed oh, with nice. emotionally focused therapy. Right. So it's oh, all nice. of these conversations of how to repair emotional damage in relationship. And they brought up this study, um, that was basically talking about, we so often talk about enmeshment and codependency and all of these really negative feeling negative ways of, how people kind of connect with one another and that there is also secure attachment and very primal need, need for connection. And what they were saying was one of the studies was, um, a person was told that there was going to be a small shock administered to their foot intermittently. And they were, you know, testing all of their, basically their stress responses, right? How much cortisol was present in their system? What was their heart rate doing? All of these different things. And whether or not the shock was ever administered, there was this huge feeling of anxiety. And then what they did was the exact same experiment and had their partner sit next to them and either give them a word of affirmation that it was all going to be fine or even touch. And just that was able to completely lower, like this person was not ever really even registering what might happen if a shock were to occur. So now we apply that into the mix of our inability to take <laughs> like trust cues or distrust cues and put that partner that with somebody that actually you are co-regulating your nervous system on. 
how much more confusing that gets. And so I guess the reason I share all of that is to say, for those of you listening, we are not trying to oversimplify, oversimplify a very complex thing, right? Like there are tools and there are takeaways from this entire conversation, which I love so much about all of our conversations and they take practice. So inviting in compassion when you don't get it right, when you forget the validating, when you say intention instead of recognizing impact, all of these different things, because we're all navigating this as best we can right now. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. So we're not trying, like, you know, we, we have this ideal that we're aiming for in cooperative communication, in apologizing, in recognizing our impact, um, in showing up for people and caring compassionate ways, but we're human. And so we're going to fall short. And part of loving each other means that we're going to hurt each other, right? So getting rid of the idealism that love is going to solve all of logistics to the point where we're never going to experience pain or loneliness or, you know, mismatched needs that it's just going to solve all of that. And really being able to go like, oh, I love you. And we're in close relationship with each other. That means I'm going to mess up and I'm probably going to hurt you. And so getting really clear on, you know, like basically when we tell on ourselves, oh shit, I just realized I completely missed the validation move. Oh, by the way, I just realized I'm completely focusing on my intention versus my impact. And so being able to course correct feels really important. So like, we're not, we're not trying to be perfect in this. We're just trying to be able to be human and acknowledge like when we make mistakes in a way that is functional for the relationship. Oh, all right. I'm leaving it on that mic drop because there's so many other things we can talk about. But yes, going back to what you're saying that apologizing is not admitting guilt or that you are totally wrong, right? We are allowed to disagree in a way that is fulfilling for both people. It doesn't always have to escalate to nobody being heard, right? Holding the space that you need held. Oh my gosh. I just want to like recap this whole show. So guys like rewind, re-listen. What was the old blockbuster thing? Like be kind, rewind. (laughs) Uh, Listen through a couple of times because there are so many awesome nuggets in here. Sarah, thank you so much. If people want to work with you, they want to listen to the show that you're putting out weekly with all of these amazing tools. How do people follow your journey and get connected? Sure. So I'm doing this really exciting collaboration with Mudwater right now. And so I'm the host for Trends with Benefits. And you can find Trends with Benefits on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, anywhere where you listen to podcasts. You can also check out trendswithbenefits.com. I've written some articles there. Other people have written amazing articles. So you can check out trendswithbenefits.com. Amazing. You have too. Exactly. I have. Yeah. <laughs> Great platform to be participating in community with. And you can also find me on Instagram at Be the Radical Way. Awesome. I will link all of that in the show notes. Sarah, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Love talking with you.